Yes, sir. Oh, yeah, John is, continues to struggle. Um, Ellen was texting with Darla. It's been a couple of days since, and he was heavy, had like micronodules on the lungs. Do you know any, any more details since then? hasn't been able to, to kick this. Yeah, let's just, just very quickly, Lord, we bring our brother John before you, and uh, we rejoice that we can trust your care for him, and it's in, his, in, your, in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, we're in Matthew 25. I really love review. Review, 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 review. But I'm going to cut it short in the interest of, of finishing. I've made much of, of the context. We're in the fifth of the five discourses. And I haven't dwelt, I've dwelt on just the larger context of Scripture, of Matthew being the gospel of the kingdom. But I want to particularly um, make sure we notice that Matthew 24 and 25 are the fifth of the five discourses. You know, we have... Matthew 5 through 7, um, life in the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 10, uh, the Apostles' Discourse. Matthew 13, the Discourse of the Parables. Matthew 18, uh, what's uh, the Church Discourse. And then this is the fifth of the Discourses, uh, the Olivet Discourse. Now, there are different titles. If you've heard the five Discourses referred to uh, in other ways, there's different ways they're classified and... and uh, and categorized, I think that's, an, for me, that's, a, that's an easy uh, set of things to remember. Um, but the reason I particularly want to talk about that is because, just think of the discourses, okay? Matthew is divided up into these five discourses. That's sort of the organizational heart, the literary heart of the, of the, uh, the gospel of Matthew. In between the discourses, there are these uh, these narrative passages which tell the events surrounding the, the, the discourses. But you read most commentators, most scholars, and they will say that it's not merely there's discourse sections and narrative sections. The, the organization and the literary heart, you know, what Jesus is really directing our attention to through, through the writing of Matthew is his teaching in the discourses. And we have you know, the first one is just this radical, and we, we don't, I don't think we appreciate the radical nature of it, of the, uh, the, the values of the kingdom, the way of looking at the kingdom, what it means to be a servant of the king is upside down. And then he has this commission, which is pretty radical and self-sacrificial for his apostles. And of course, I'm just running through without noticing many details here. But um, this commission to his apostles in Matthew 10, and then we have these, these parables which illustrate um, what, you know, a lot of what's already been said in Matthew 5 through 7, but emphasize, emphasizes God's providence and the way uh, different situations and creation itself reflects what God is doing in creation and in his kingdom. Um, uh, 
think the, the seeds, the mystery of God producing life. I find it very interesting that um, as far as I know, I don't, I'm not terribly scientific-minded, but I read this some years ago, and I don't think there's been any change in the state of the art of science. With all the scientific advances we have, all the details we have on the cellular level, I don't believe, I know this was true some years ago, that anyone has ever been able to provide a, a material scientific explanation for exactly what it is that makes a seed germinate and turn from this dead, unfruitful piece of grain into a living plant. We can talk about the conditions, we can talk about what happens with the cells, but why it happens. Like I said, I, I, I was reading an article, this is years and years ago, maybe it's changed, but it couldn't be explained. I mean, new life is miraculous, both on the natural level and even more so on the spiritual level. And then uh, Matthew 18, you know, we have this discourse which talks about life among a community of believers, and now we're talking about this passage in which Jesus is answering the questions of the destruction of the temple. We talk about Matthew 24, different approaches to that. Um, I am emphasizing the warning and encouragement of looking forward to the return of the king. Um, and there's lots of details we've discussed. I'm just kind of run past them for the moment. And the reason I just take a moment to... to to review the discourses is because if you put them all together and look at them as a, as a body of teaching, I think it becomes evident that in, in at least one very real sense, what we're coming to at the end of Matthew 25 is the climax of all the teaching of the discourses. Um, and we've talked about uh, those who... Um, Receive the talents. We just talked about that last night, or I'm sorry, last week. And um, the, there's this, you know, there's five talents, there's two talents, there's one talent. There's this judgment that falls on the man that had the one talent because he's unprofitable. He's an unprofitable servant. He uses that very um, word in verse 30 of Matthew 25, cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. We talk a little bit about in that phrase, just all by itself. It's a very tight tie between purpose and judgment. You are created for the purpose of being an image bearer. That's what it means to be human. Because of the fall, that can only be done in Jesus. Um, but if it is done in Jesus, it's not just a matter of saving your soul from judgment. It is the changing of you into a different kind of a of a person, of a human being. You become a profitable servant. And this, this whole passage revolves around the idea of fruitfulness. Um, notice that the servant with the, who dug and put his one talent in the ground, um, he has this, this terribly corrupted, twisted view of the harshness of his master. But in the parable, that isn't the thing that he, that he is particularly judged for. The judgment is pronounced upon his hypocrisy, even according to his own corrupt standard. Now, I'm not saying it's a small deal that he has a wrong view of the king. That leads to all sorts of problems if, if, you, if you're wrong about who the Lord is. But the 
judgment is, if you thought that of me, the thing to do which was consistent with your perverted misunderstanding of the true and the living God was to invest the money so that I would have received my own with interest and you would have been at least in some measure a profitable servant. But what you're judged for is that, um, I think kind of taking a shortcut past what we talked about last week, uh, the, the ground of the judgment is not so much his wrong view of the living and the true God, but his self-centeredness. It is all about me. It is all about saving my skin and not offending the Lord. I just want to get out of this responsibility uh, without being you know, condemned because my master is so harsh. I'm just going to hide the money. And it's ironic that the inward turn of the eyes of the heart of this servant It's all about me. It's all about me just escaping the harsh judgment of my master. And that self, that focus on self and what happens to me and my own profit, it's all about me, what's going to happen to me. That very focus, which is the thing which, which makes him bury the talent in the ground, is the thing that results in his judgment. It makes him unprofitable. And it's really important to connect profitability to the heart of the people that are in this, that are in this illustration, that are in this analogy. There are those who, you know, they have different talents, different levels, different things that the Lord entrusts them with, makes them stewards of. And they either have a heart to make use of it for the Lord's sake, or oh, I, I just got to protect myself from his from his anger which makes them unprofitable and it's not just the wrong view of the master it's the that that it, that it yields a focus on self you might argue that a correct view of the math, master would free the servant not to be so self-focused to focus on the glory of his master um, um, so all that's gone before now we're coming to this last passage. I'll just pause for a second before we read this, this last um, part of Matthew 25. Any comments so far? That was kind of a very fast run through. Go ahead, Gary. Please do. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Exactly, yeah. Building the best fire in the world, not lighting it, yields no warmth. Yeah. Yeah, the talents. Right. Yeah. I I know, I know. Yeah. I'm just going to write the word up here. Stewardship. 
even your salvation. I know that's not very big, but just the fact that I wrote it, maybe you'll, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. A lot of the evangelical theology, we find ourselves patting ourselves on the back because, oh, we know the truth. We understand God's grace. We understand God's sovereignty. Well, great. That's a great starting place, but it's a stewardship. Yeah, and that, that, that's the thrust of this whole passage. Um, Ray just said to me right before the... Uh, right before Sunday school, if there's ever a passage which you could understand to talk about works, salvation, earning God's uh, favor, you know, if you take this out of context, this is it. But if you take it in context, the whole point of this whole passage is there's God's grace. God's grace is productive. It is not just a thing which is all about me out of hell. That, that, steward with one talent burying his his piece of money uh, could could very easily be analogous to an evangelical Christian whose main concern is just what happens to me am I going to get out of hell am I going to get my get into heaven free card that's all that matters what about fruitfulness well that's all secondary and some people are fruitful some people no 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 God's grace yields fruit. God's grace is a stewardship which yields fruit. And I think that sets the whole thing in the, the appropriate context. Um, so there is a very real sense. I mean, Jesus is not mincing words here. You know, what you do is judged, but, but I think it's clear that it is um, what you do, how you live is the evidence of what's going on in the heart as you steward the, the faith in Jesus through the grace of God. Are you, the, are you the, that person who really trusts God by God's grace? And if you are, it will inevitably yield fruit. Now, deathbed, you know, professions, I'm not, I'm not casting any aspersions on them, but the ordinary circumstance of you trust Christ, you have some life to live. In one, man, in one degree or another, it will be fruitful. And if it is not, God help you and me. Now, shall we move? Okay. I hope I didn't hijack your comment. Yeah, I, hope, I hope I didn't hijack your comment. But I just, I think, it's, I, I find it exciting. Like, oh, look what God is doing in people. Okay, so um, just, just observe some things as we read through this. Um, I'll point them out as we go along. Reading chapter Matthew 25, um, after the unprofitable servant of the talents is cast into the outer darkness. And by the way, we could 
dwell on the horror of the image. Outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. It is not a pretty picture. Then he goes on, starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. I wrote that up here. Sorry, Gary. I know you can't see it. Uh, nations. Okay, he's judging nations. We, we, you know, our minds immediately go to individual judgment. What, you know, how, am I a sheep or a goat? You know, am I trusting in Jesus? And that, I think that's valid. But there is also this corporate element where he is judging the nations. And they, they are the, the nations is the antecedent to the judgment that is described. All the nations will be gathered before him, verse 32. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Um, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger or take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it, um, I'm going to talk about the culpability right there. You did not do it to one of the least of these, and I think that's parallel to these, my brethren, and the and the uh, previous description of the the righteous. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay, so there's this judgment of the nations. And I'm going to put up here 2 Peter 2.9. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Um, I'm quoting it and I'm forgetting a phrase, but that... He, that uh, you should show forth the praises of him who should call you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You become a nation. 
So yeah, there are certain, you know, individuals make up nations, and there's certainly this individual judgment, but there's also this sense in which we need to be made part of the nation of the redeemed, as 2 Peter 2.9 talks about, and that is represented on earth by Christ's church. Um, then he gets down, as he's pronouncing judgment on those who did not clothe, feed, visit. Um, you notice, I, I just think it, it, we got to at least notice it. doesn't need to be elaborated on, but they are culpable for sins of omission. The chief ground here is not what they did wrong. It's what they didn't do. Uh, scares me to death. I've often said, you know, when I stand in front of people and teach, you know, the older I get, the more I think, well, just what do you need to hear? If you if you need to hear it, probably others need to hear it too. And I'm just preaching to myself, and I think these people weren't even aware of what they hadn't done. Am I aware of of how I could have served my Lord and have failed to do so? of how many ways I may have failed to exercise compassion on the least, the least of Christ's brethren. Um, But I think it's really noteworthy and really sobering. I'd I'd feel much better about this passage personally if it talked about, you know, their adulteries and and their theft and their covetousness. And there are passages that talk about those things as grounds of judgment. Um... It's not less serious, but it's it's more concrete to think. Well, you know, am I am I stealing? Am I committing adultery? Even in my heart, okay, those are sort of concrete things you can face yourself with. These people are culpable for things that not only they didn't do, but they didn't know they weren't doing. Now, I would say this is all bound up in the blindness of the heart, which has not been made the steward of the grace of God. But still, it's a pretty sobering thought. They are being judged for what they did not do and did not know that they were not doing. That's pretty pretty sobering. Um, And there's really no, no escaping it. I mean, that's just what the passage says. Yeah. 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 Well, I, th- I think a parallel passage to this, and I'm not going to dwell on it just in the interest of time, but you know, turn, turn for yourself sometime, maybe this afternoon, read Acts chapter 9, because here was Saul persecuting the church. He was persecuting Jesus. Oh, I mean, the, the, the parallel is direct here. You know, what you do to Jesus' people, you're going to him. Was, was Saul deliberately ignorant? Well, he's a Pharisee. He sh- you know, whatever we, whatever we might say about um, the need of God's grace, and the scripture says a lot about the need of God's grace to open blind eyes, still there is a sense in which the nation of Israel is judged for what they should have known by being knowledgeable of the scriptures. And Paul was phenomenally knowledgeable of the scriptures 
So was he willfully ignorant that he was doing this, this terrible thing to Christ? Yes and no. He says in, in one place, I did it in ignorance. And yet in another sense, did he choose to run past the, the, the signposts of prophecy and condemn Jesus and hate his followers? He absolutely made a deliberate choice to do that. So, yes. There's a yes and no, I think. There's a, a component of ignorance, and it gets a little mysterious. Where's the line between ignorance and deliberate neglect of the truth? I don't know. You know Lord, Lord, help me. Um, but, yeah, there's certainly that element. Um, notice that the compassion that he calls for is unconditional. It's the least of the brethren. And there's no question here about, well, are they poor because of their own shortcomings? Are they in prison because they, you know, you know, committed a crime and it's just on them? That discussion isn't here. It's just the least of these, my brethren, the least of them. Just be compassionate. You know, you are culpable for that and it is to be unconditional. Be compassionate. Now, I think there's a a wealth of discussion that could be had that just, like, in a, in a world of infinite possibilities, how do I choose which things to devote my energies of compassion to? And uh, no one can do everything. So I don't think we're supposed to get the, the message that if there's anybody on earth or even anybody in my neighborhood who's going unattended to, you know, that's all on me. I just think, the fact that we are creatures of time and creatures of limited energy and resources. There's, there's things we can do, things we can't do, things we should, things that are beyond the, beyond the scope of our, of our uh, influence. But the Lord doesn't talk about that here. He just says, be compassionate, and it's going to work out. I think the other thing that's, that's tied up with this is that in both cases, in, bo- in the case of the righteous and in the case of the wicked who are judged, neither of them seem to be doing or not doing works of compassion deliberately to serve Christ. The ignorant, I mean, the, the righteous are sort of ignorant of what they've done. And I think it's, it's this comment on their heart. They're not going around to say, well, i got to be obedient to Jesus. He, he's insisting I be compassionate. I better be compassionate because I want to stand in that judgment and say, I was compassionate for you, Lord. Matthew 7 has something to say about that. Um, they have just been made into the kinds of people who trust the Lord and act accordingly and you know, really have a handle on this idea that there but for the grace of God go I. Just compassionate, and they're and, and they're surprised to find out that their compassion is favorably looked upon, and Jesus loves it and rewards it because it is compassion done to Him. Didn't know. When, when did I do all this stuff? It's, it's really incredible. And it's same thing, likewise with with those who are judged. I, I didn't know. Um, and I, I think the only conclusion you, you draw is that. This isn't, strictly speaking, a matter of obedience. Now, it's, it is, but it's not, strictly speaking, just a matter of doing what God commands. It's a matter of 
being, by God's grace, as a truster and follower of the, of the Savior, are you that kind of person? If you are, it's going to work out in your life. And if you're not, that's going to work out in your life. Now, don't, don't hear me to say that obedience doesn't matter. I'm just saying in this particular passage, neither in neither case is strict obedience just following commands. That's important in other passages. In this passage, that's really not the issue. It's what kind of a person are you and how, and do you act, and how do you act accordingly in this passage? Um, so it's just a very sobering passage. He uses the word brethren. He says, inasmuch as you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. Um, parallel passage to give some thought is in Galatians chapter 6. I'm just going to turn there real quickly. I think I could quote it, but I'm not going to try. Uh, where Jesus says, he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. Let us not grow weary in verse 9 while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there is this particular responsibility to those who belong to Jesus. But it's not exclusive. And, you know, we being, you know, modern categorical speak or thinkers tend to say, oh, okay, I'll, I'll be especially good to people in the church who I know are Jesus' people, and that's what Jesus em- emphasizes. But he, and he does emphasize that. There is a premium on being kind to his people. And he said, and in Galatians, it's particularly the household of faith. But he doesn't let us off the hook and say that's all we're to do. It's be good to all. He could stop there. Just be good to people. Especially the household of faith, faith, but do be good to all. And then when you come back from that passage to Matthew 25, I think it's even a little more... Um, ambiguous in what this could mean, this word brethren, because you have to say, okay, household of faith is pretty clear, you know, we're talking about people who know and profess profess and are walking with Jesus, that's the household of faith, but brethren, well, okay, wait a minute, what about, what about the Samaritan woman who met Jesus and obviously was not a follower of Jesus, Jesus you know, been married several times and finally was living with a guy. And, I mean, you know, a Samaritan, there's a whole, we can discuss the whole history of who the Samaritans were relative to the Jews and just this disgust that the Jews had for the Samaritans. Was she brethren to Jesus? Well, certain, she seems to have come to faith, so certainly she became. But knowing what we know about Christ's sovereign plan and election of his of the souls of every human being can you say she wasn't one of his brethren until she met him and was instructed by him and came to faith that's a dangerous that's kind of dangerous thinking the sense in which that that's true but there's another sense in which Jesus's compassion brought her 
to that place of, of being explicitly his, his sister. In the eternal scheme of things, was she not his sister even when she was committing adultery? Even when she was marrying her you know, third husband and then eventually being cut loose from him, whatever might have happened? Was she his, was she his sister? Well, certainly in the eternal, eternal scheme of things, yes. I think, I think the passage here uses the term brethren. I don't think there's any accidents. I, I, I just think if, if it was explicit that he was only talking about professing believers, he could have made that clear. But who's, who, are, who are my brethren? You know, isn't there, to ask that question, isn't it similar to the, to the lawyer in Luke 9 who said, who faced with love your neighbor as yourself, um, said, well, who's my neighbor? And what, what came out of that passage? When, the, when the, uh, the, the lawyer said, who is my neighbor? What's, how did Jesus answer? Come on. What, 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 what's he say, Newton? Yeah. Well, and he gives a parable, again, of involving a Samaritan. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 9. Read, I'm, I'm, I'm not t- turning to everything because I'm, you know, I want to cover the ground, but the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who's my neighbor? Oh, the Samaritan is. No comment on whether the Samaritan knew the living and the true God, but the Samaritan behaved in a way that reflected the compassion of the living and the true God. And the Jews, one of the, one of the particularly, particular things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are particular, particularly rebuked for is assuming that they know who's out. And it's all about, you know, you know being one of us. Ooh, again, very convicting. Um, so... Culpable for what we do and what we don't do. Unconditional compassion. It doesn't mean foolish compassion. It doesn't mean, you know, go give your money to the first drug drug addict you can find because they might spend your money on drugs and it may not be a wise thing to do. But does that mean there's no way to be compassionate? Compassion is unconditional and the compassion is, you know, as we exercise it, to the least of the brethren, whatever we mean by brethren, potential brethren, actual brethren, yeah, everybody from our standpoint is potential brethren, at least. Um, we, don't, we don't enjoy the luxury of being able to say, well, I get, to, I get to rule a bunch of people out and only focus on this group because they are the professing followers of Jesus. We do have a particular responsibility. I really think that's the point of Galatians chapter 5. There's a particular responsibility for the household of faith. But do we get to enjoy the luxury of just only looking there and you know, excluding the rest of the world? We do not. We do not enjoy any such luxury. Um, running out of time can't close. I've alluded to it once. I don't think you can close without comparing, uh, you know, you do this on your own, comparing this passage to Matthew chapter 7. 
uh, where people are standing before the Lord. And uh, the, the context is chat, or verse 19 of chapter 7 of Matthew. So back to the first discourse. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Oh, this has been fleshed out all through this gospel of the kingdom. Um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. This is where I think the parallel gets interesting. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? So in Matthew 25, they're being judged, either commended or or condemned for what they did or did not do unconsciously. There's this unselfconscious goodness or lack of goodness that, that is the, the fruit of God working in people. This is, oh, they, these are people who are self-conscious about what they do. Look, look, Lord, I did this. I, I did all sorts of stuff in your name. I prophesied. I cast out demons. I did wonderful things in your name. I was deliberately serving you. And, and Jesus' response to them, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And you connect that back to verse 19, which began that uh, this, this, this uh, vignette in Scripture. They lacked the fruit. They lacked the fruit. It doesn't matter that they did things that appeared fruitful. They lacked the fruit, even though they deliberately, self-consciously did things in obedience, in what they believed was obedience to the Lord. It wasn't the fruit that Jesus describes as the true reflection by the new heart of the true God through faith in Jesus and I never knew you. So, we're just about out of time. I'm finished with Matthew 25. I think Ty's picking up uh, Matthew 26. Um, the discourse ends, launches into the narrative uh, of Jesus' final days. Comments, questions before we close the, close the chapter? Go ahead, Rebecca.
I would, I would just add to that whole picture of community, community in the word, because there's a, lot, there's a lot of ideas about what compassion looks like in the world. We are talking about specifically gospel imitating biblical compassion, and we have this, this elaborate book that God gave us that sketches that out for us, both in positive and negative terms that our fellowship has gathered around, and, and then you said the rest. <laughs> so, all right, thank you all.